people are funny bunch. We're the only species that can pass down so much knowledge from generation to generation. And yet at the same time, we want to repeat the mistakes of our ancestors. The people who get really forward life, I think, are the ones who just look at the mistakes of others and say, hey, that's just not an area I'm going to go to. And think of how far those people get ahead in life, how much faster they jump over the hurdles because they bypass all the hurdles. But there are very few people like that. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. My guest today is Christopher Tsai. He shares the story of his late grandmother, the only woman to trade on the floor of the Shanghai Stock Exchange before it abruptly closed in 1941 when the Japanese troops invaded. Then we talk about his late father, Gerald Tsai, the founder of the famous Manhattan Fund, and Christopher's own successful investing career. Christopher Tsai is president and chief investment officer of Tsai Capital, an investment management firm. He has more than two decades of experience. Christopher pursues a value-oriented investment approach and seeks high-quality growth companies that offer significant upside potential and a margin of safety at the time of purchase. Christopher has been profiled in numerous financial publications. When he's not looking at businesses, he loves running in nature, quiet time with his books and family, submersing himself in the arts and a perfectly steeped pot of tea. We talk about cultivating passion for investing as the third generation investment professional in his family, benefits of long-term investing, multiplying the capital many times over versus chasing a small short-term upside the emotional makeup needed to succeed in investing, the challenges of passing knowledge from generation to generation, learning from mistakes of others. Please help me welcome Christopher Tsai. Hello, Christopher. Thank you for joining me today. Ogomil, it's wonderful to be here with you today. It's always a pleasure to catch up. We've had a lot of nice lunches in New York talking about stocks and investing, and I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to go a little bit deeper and talk about some things that were on my mind. And I appreciate that you agreed to this. So oh, thanks. It's, it's my pleasure. I guess it's been a while since we last saw each other in person, probably around the launch of the book, Money, Life, and Family, which I really enjoyed reading. But... Thank you. That's so kind of you to say. I'm curious about your story. You grew up around investing, and it goes back a few generations. And I'm curious what it's been like. And will you pass it on? My late father, Gerald Sai, who I'm happy to talk more at length about, has received a lot of attention. But really, I want to start off in answering your question by talking about my grandmother just a little bit. She was an amazing woman. She was a feisty woman. First of all, she was the only woman to trade stocks on the Shanghai Stock Exchange from about 1939 to 
1941, when Japanese troops invaded what was then called the Shanghai International Settlement, and the stock exchange abruptly closed. But think about that, trading stocks as a woman in Shanghai in 1939. She had a trading mentality. She was a feisty lady. Picture this. I was told by my late father that one day the Chinese government came to her home, knocked at the door late in the evening, and said, you have two days to vacate your home. We're confiscating your land. Grandma Ruth, as feisty as she was, knew that she had no choice but to agree to this. But what she did do before she vacated two days later was she stripped all of the topsoil off the land, which was, of course, the most valuable part of the land. That's how she dealt with giving up her family home. She taught my father so many things. She taught my father about never giving up, being competitive. But also, I think she understood intuitively Dale Carnegie. And what I mean by that, Bogomil, is that she once said to me, why be a square table when you can be around one? She instilled that kind of value, that kind of personality in my father from a very early age. He consequently was amazing really amazing at dealing with people because he intuitively understand what to say, what not to say, and to make people feel important. Deservedly, they should have felt important. My father and my grandmother influenced me. I learned so much from my grandmother up until, until she passed away. She lived till about 93 years. And all of those values she instilled in my father, I think she passed on to me as well. But what was interesting about my father is that he never pushed either of his two children into investing. Growing up, I was surrounded by talk of investing at the dinner table. I was surrounded by his friends who were predominantly CEOs of major corporations and often high-ranking politicians. I guess subconsciously, a lot of that conversation had an impact on me and rubbed off. My sister's godfather was around quite a bit, for example, and his name was Larry Tisch, CEO, of course founder with his brother of Lowe's Corporation, a truly great value investor. So I was surrounded by great investors and I learned from so many of them just by listening to conversation and speaking with my father almost at every time we had the opportunity to do so about investing. What about the next generation? Are you thinking about introducing the next generation of your family to investing? Are you trying to instill some ideas? I'm sure that conversations happen and stories repeat. I'm curious, what's your mindset about that? I would, of course, love for my children to follow in a similar path because, and we can talk about this later, I think investing has so many ancillary benefits that come along with that journey, so to speak. But I think that people have to do what they're naturally passionate about. And you just can't teach that. If you're not truly passionate about something, I don't think that you'll ever be great at something. You might be very good at it, but you're not going to be great at it. And the reason you're not going to be great at it is because you're not going to put the hours in, those extra hours that everybody else who is great is putting in. You need to have a deep passion and a love to want to work really hard. So that work helps you improve, allows you to compete in whatever field it is that you're in. Without that drive, I think you're going to give up. Or are you just going to be average? So you touched on my second question, which is why investing? And most of all, why stock investing? I'm curious why you decided to devote so much time and attention. Where did the passion come from? And I understand it's upbringing, but 
you kept it alive and going for all those years. So tell me more. Hit on the right word. You use the word curious. So I think naturally I'm a very curious person. And what I realized very early when I started looking at companies when I was around 11 years old is that there's just so many different products and services, industries, businesses. It's an endless journey of learning. It's an endless journey of discovery. And investing naturally lends itself to being able to refine yourself because so many psychological or we should say cognitive biases come into play when it comes to investing. And in order to manage money, I think, successfully, one has to understand those cognitive biases, particularly within oneself. So it's not good enough just to understand what they are, but one has to understand how those biases that come from human evolution affect ourselves. So it's an endly, endless journey of discovery. That's my And I love that. I'm learning about myself and I'm learning about other businesses, products, and services all the time. And I'm competing against some of the best minds in the world. That's just really appealing. So it's intellectually rewarding in many ways. And I'm thinking about the financially rewarding part of it. If you took it away out of the equation, would you still do it? Absolutely. It's a hell of a lot of fun for me. It's not always, it's actually, it's usually a struggle because it's a very difficult game if you want to call it a game. But I would absolutely do it. Fortunately, when you're right about an idea and you're a long-term investor, there's a lot of asymmetry. In other words, you can make multiples on the upside versus a limited downside. I like that idea of investing as well because governments purposely deflate the value of currencies over time. I figure that the value of the U.S. dollar depreciates in half by for every 17 or 18 years that pass. And that's because of inflation, purposeful. So how do we overcome the effects of inflation? One of the ways is to invest that money. And ideally, as we do, we prefer to invest that money in high quality businesses that are asset light and have pricing power. These types of businesses tend to do very well in inflationary times. Investing is a way to overcome adverse effects of inflation. That's another benefit, of course, the financial side that you mentioned. And there's tons of asymmetry. So putting investing aside for a minute, I'm curious about your relationship with money and your upbringing and childhood and its influence on your relationship with money. It's a topic that came up in quite a few conversations that I've been having. I came across this speech that my grandmother gave to her church. It's not that long, maybe five pages or so. And in it, I discovered when I was a teenager that my father and his sister were separated from each other for more than a decade. My grandmother and my grandfather were separated from each other for more than a decade twice. And reading through this speech, I realized how much effort and how much pain my father, grandmother, grandfather had to go through to come to America and to build a career, at least on my father's side here. So what I'm saying, Bogomil, is that I realized, I think, pretty early on how much my father sacrificed in order to 
give his children the best start. And I saw how hard that he worked. So this is a long way of answering your question about my relationship to to money. Money was not something I ever took for granted. I grew up in a very privileged background, but I personally don't think I ever took it for granted because I saw how hard my father worked. I saw the sacrifices his side of the family had to make in order to give me a certain foundation that he did not have. And he taught me during our many investing talks that I spoke about earlier, taught me, Bogomil, about the importance of not losing capital on a permanent basis. He did very well in dealing with volatility himself. He had the right temperament to deal with auction-driven markets where prices move a lot more than underlying values. I think that I was born with a fairly good temperament. In other words, my temperament is naturally suited for investing. Not everybody has that. And this kind of swings back to your question earlier, if I want to pass anything down in terms of interest or drive to my children. For them to do well, they need to have a certain temperament. And I think Charlie Munger even mentions that people are either born with temperament or they're not. Certain temperament that is conducive to successful investing. I don't know how they have it yet. They're only 12. We'll see. But they also need to be naturally passionate, as I mentioned. Makes me think of Warren Buffett and his forward to Ben Graham's book. He mentions that the book has everything except for the emotional makeup preparation. That's something you have to provide yourself. And I think that's the essence of it all. I think you're absolutely right. Now, people can't deal well with losses they see on paper, quotations moving around every day. And quite frankly, I think most people, because of that, are better off buying real estate or where there's not a daily quotation. Or maybe it can be trained to buy something more stable and not look at it every day. But unfortunately, these cognitive biases that I alluded to earlier make that very difficult for most people. This leads me to another question in a similar topic. It's... Managing your own money and managing other people's money are not the same thing. And it's something that you and I discussed extensively before. And I always think of a perfect client. And I always think that the manager has to find the right client and the client has to find the right manager. And I'm curious, what's your definition of a perfect client or at least the right client for you specifically? Well, I'll say that, and I've had this discussion with somebody recently. I'll say that a perfect client would be a clone of myself. But that's obviously not possible. So the idea, I think, of a perfect client is actually a myth, doesn't exist. However, there are clients, and I believe most of the clients, if not all of the clients of Side Capital today, are pretty darn close to perfect. So what do I mean by that? I mean that clients who are pretty darn close to perfect are those who are truly aligned with our investment approach. We don't want anybody to become a client who is not completely aligned with our investment approach. So I spend a lot of time talking to people before they invest, and it's usually obvious they are not going to be a good fit. In fact, on our website, I believe we have a sentence that purposely dissuades people from investing if after they read what we have published is not something that they agree. So it's very important from the get-go that clients understand our approach. We're looking to buy high-quality businesses, typically during periods of volatility and market sell-offs, that have tremendous competitive advantages. And we want to be able to hold those businesses 
for the long term and allow compounding to do its wonders. We're typically buyers during market sell-offs. We typically do less in bull markets. We don't get into forecasting the overall market. We don't think about when a recession might end. We don't think about if interest rates are going to be up 50 basis points in the next three months or are they going to be up 25 basis points. It really is not that important provided you're in businesses that are growing and were purchased at prices that represented value. These macro factors, the noise, so to speak, that most people are focused on may be important to short-term traders, probably is very important to short-term traders. The problem is that nobody can predict how loud the noise is going to be on a consistent basis. So we ignore the noise and focus on the fundamentals of the businesses that we own. I think you just described your dream investment. And from what I'm hearing, you see the noise as something that creates opportunities. Because if everybody was as calm, collected, and rational as you are, there would be very few opportunities. So in a way, I think we should say thank you to everybody <laughs> creating and following the noise. Absolutely. Without volatility, I don't think we would have done nearly as well as we have. We need that volatility because high quality assets do not typically go on sale unless there's some sort of fear. Our job is to understand the values of what we're buying and take advantage of the fear of others. You mentioned earlier the daily price, but without the daily price, you wouldn't have those opportunities either because a private owner of a business is probably not even aware how much the business is potentially worth. While if you're holding shares of any public company, you know every minute of the day what the market would be willing to pay for them. Absolutely. And because of all of the emotions that come along with money, forget about investing, but money in general, and I think you speak about this in your book, but there are so many emotions that surround money. Think about how much more stressed out people would be if Every day they woke up and they got a quote on their home. And I think Buffett talks about this in relation to buying a farm. One day the neighboring farm owner offers a certain price, the next day another price, the next day another price. Is a farm owner going to sell just because the neighbor is offering a different price every day? Probably not if he or she believes in the long-term potential of the farm. And we think about businesses the same way. The price precisely to the point that you noted gives us opportunity. Not often, but once in a while, we get periods of massive disruption, either in the entire stock market or individual quotations. That's our opportunity. We like to buy when other people are here. A lot of attention in investing goes into buying, what kind of businesses to buy, what price to pay. And I think there were quite a few investors that perfected their own formula that works for them. But very little attention is spent on selling. Very few people talk about it. And I'm curious about your selling policy. I know you want to hold everything forever, but I also know that you do sell sometimes. We have a specific sell policy. But before I answer that question, I think that it's really a lot easier to know when to buy than to know when to sell. So we spend a lot of time on thinking about when it might be the right time to exit a business, even though we have the mentality of owning our businesses indefinitely, because the world does change. But every business that we do buy we buy with the intent of holding for the very long term. Our sell policy is simple. As long as the fundamental story of the company hasn't changed, we don't sell. Unless we feel that there is a better risk-reward opportunity elsewhere. So I'll repeat, as long as we feel that the fundamental story of a company hasn't changed, we don't sell. Unless we feel that there's a better risk-reward opportunity 
elsewhere. We don't typically sell because something might become temporarily overvalued. All great growth companies become temporarily overvalued. And the first rule of compounding is don't interrupt the compound. There's also an element to consider that is truly important, and that is the tax implications. A friend of mine recently said, had you timed this market perfectly, by that I mean this current market, this current bear market, had you timed it exit perfectly in January of 2022 and bought back today, you would be pretty much no better off after having paid the taxes. No better off on an after-tax basis. And it's very unlikely that you would commit all your capital back when you yourself might be influenced by the anxiety and fear of others. So we don't typically sell because something becomes temporarily overvalued. I'm really reminded of Peter Lynch with respect to your question. So Peter Lynch said in in an old interview, I think it was from the mid-90s. I can't remember exactly when he said this, but he did say, There are two ways investors can fake themselves out of the big returns that come from great growth companies. The first is waiting to buy the stock when it looks cheap. The second mistake is underestimating how long a great growth company can keep up the pace. It's very true. So I hope that gives you a flavor for how we think about our sell policy. I'm a big fan of Peter Lynch and his books too. And Peter Lynch, by the way, from what I understand, took over my father's office when he left Fidelity to launch Manhattan Fund. There you go. Yet another connection. You might know the story that I picked up his book when I was in college, and it really changed my mind about what I want to do with my life. One up on Wall Street, it opened my eyes to a whole new world. I never thought of stocks as small pieces of businesses. No professor ever told me that. And such a simple idea, and I couldn't look at stocks the same way ever again, and I haven't since. It's a book that's written so well, is accessible. Exactly. So accessible, so engaging. I really enjoyed it. And I reread it many times since I have the old copy of Yellow Pages somewhere sitting on the shelf, but it's still with me. It's a very simple book and there's a lot more you have to learn, but I think it's a great introduction to anybody curious about investing. You touched on taxes and investing. And if you don't mind, let's explore it a little bit because it's something that comes up I feel like sometimes taxes take priority over investing and I think something gets lost when people try to realize losses or postpone gains for the benefit of certain taxes coming this way or that way, uh, timing them. What's your perspective? It's hard enough to invest by itself, but you take into account the tax consequences. It gets a little bit tricky sometimes as the example that you shared before. It absolutely becomes tricky. However, I can make an argument that the fact that we have to pay taxes on realized gains is actually potentially beneficial to the truly long-term investor because it gives that investor an added incentive not to sell. And we're talking about Peter Lynch. He, he famously said, don't cut the flowers in order to water the weeds. If you were right and you're up three, four, five times on investment, and now you're thinking about, hey, maybe I want to sell it and move into something else. And you're one of those typical investors that underestimates, as Peter Lynch said, how long a great growth company can keep up pace. You might think twice before selling, and you just might wind up keeping that investment because of the potential tax consequences of selling. And consequently, you might do a hell of a lot better. I'm not sure exactly if taxes are the end all and be all in investing. They might work in favor of allowing people to hold on to their winners. I'd also say that one should let the tail wag the dog anyway. That's true. Now that's very true. I'm curious about your everyday practice. What does it look like if we were to spend a day in your office? 
watching you work. What's it like? I know you're a curious person, but tell us how your day looks like. I typically start my day around six o'clock in the morning with a calm walk with my dog and me around my home. And I say goodbye to the family, head to the office, and I spend the first hour or so just taking care of personal business. I find that every day there are emails that pop up and personal business, I call it, that needs to be attended to. And I like to get that out of the way within the first hour or so of getting to the office. Then it's really off to research everything that revolves around managing capitals for others. So I read an awful lot. I spend most of the day, to answer your question, in my chair at the office or at my desk reading. And I typically end the day with meditation and then exercise. It's almost like clockwork. Some would say it's boring, but I like the routine. You do something 21 times, I'm told, it becomes a habit. Oh, this became a habit years ago. Do you feel like you have enough time in a day? I absolutely feel that I have enough time in a day. And when I don't feel like I have enough time in a day, then I quickly come to the conclusion that I'm not managing my time efficiently enough because there are plenty of people who do a hell of a lot more than I do in less hours. So it's just a question of organizing one's time, one's schedule. Everybody has the same number of hours in a day. Think about Elon Musk at the moment running five or more, five companies that I know of, several of which are publicly, one of which I guess publicly traded at this point, but five fairly large companies. How does he do it? If he can do it, then he's an inspiration to me that when I feel that I can't, I should just try to figure out how to manage my schedule. I like There's a lot of investment advice for people to save throughout the life and gradually build wealth. You and I work with clients that have substantial wealth in many cases. And in some cases, that wealth arrived suddenly and they have to learn a lot very quickly. And whether this wealth was inherited or created, I'm curious what advice would you have for a person like that, sudden wealth arriving in their life? You're the expert on handing down wisdom to others on, which relates very nicely to one's life and one's family. But I would say that the advice that I would give to somebody who recently received substantial wealth through inheritance or some other means is probably the same for somebody without substantial wealth. I would tell both someone with means and somebody without means not to spend beyond your income because it's just not a sustainable path. Think of all this wealthy people who wind up losing everything because they wind up spending more along with the increase in their income and they wind ruining themselves. So I think that this is really essential, not spending beyond your financial means. And if you can, remember Ben Franklin's words. He said, even a small leak can sink a large ship. So it's important to be mindful of expenses. But it's really hard, Bogomil, I think, to teach the value of money to somebody who's not worked day in and day out at accumulating wealth. So when it comes to those who receive great inheritances, it's very hard to teach the value of money because he or she just won't understand the sacrifices that wealthy people have had to make every day in order to become wealthy. People often complain, I think, that the rich just simply get richer. But what these people don't understand is that they don't understand all the sacrifices that wealthy people have typically made could be for decades in order to get into that position in the first place. Because most people just would rather live now than have a prosperous life later. It takes a lot of effort and it's very hard to pass that down. I realize Wilhelmil more and more that I can give a lot of advice, but most people have this natural inclination to do things their own way. We all do. 
<laughs> I'm mentoring three students now, and it's very interesting to see how they think about life. You can give advice to a certain extent. You can give guidance, direction, but people are a funny bunch. We're the only species that can pass down so much knowledge from generation to generation. And yet at the same time, we want to repeat the mistakes of our ancestors. The people who get really far in life, I think, are the ones who just look at the mistakes of others and say, hey, that's just not an area I'm going to go to. They use inversion, figure out all the areas that they don't want to go to. But think of how far those people get ahead in life, how much faster they jump over the hurdles because they bypass all the hurdles. But there are very few people like that. I'm thinking of Charlie Munger. I believe he said, tell me where I will die and I won't go there. Exactly. I think there's a lesson there and applies to money and investing as well. Tell me how I can lose it all. I'll do my and best to do it. There are people, and I have met a few, there are people who look at the mistakes of others and simply don't go there. And those people are just miles ahead of everybody else. Speaking of getting far in life, in an industry where seemingly almost everything can be quantified, what's your definition of success? Well, that's a great question. I love that question. If you're asking me, Bogomil, about what a successful life, uh, what a successful life looks, then to me, it's a life that is lived with purpose. It's a life of ongoing personal refinement, accomplishment, meaningful relationships, and I think being helpful to others. Ultimately, I think it's a life where one has peace of mind. Peace of mind. I know you have a book recommendation for us. I have a number of book recommendations. We were talking about compounding earlier, and there's a book on my office desk right now by Phelps, and he wrote a book called 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. I would truly recommend that book. I'd also recommend a book called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. He's, I think his official title is Vice Chair of Ogilvy, and he even says, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> But he wrote a book called Alchemy, which is a fantastic read for those who want to understand more about life, also about investing in all of the ways that our own human mind can screw us up when it comes to investing. So that's another book that I would highly recommend. Terrific. I like the way he writes. I read the book. I read his articles now and then. I'm always amazed how much he can say with so few words. There's no word he would take away from the article. He gets <laughs> to the point of perfection. And that's my aspiration at some point. I'm hard on myself when I write, but I think he reached new levels of mastery with the written words. I'm always inspired by the way he writes. The 100 to 1 book that you mentioned, tell us more. I know the book very well, but it brings together all the things you mentioned and all the ideas. Phelps wrote this book several decades ago, and Christopher Meyer wrote, a, I call it an updated version on Phelps' original book. Both are great. But at the end of the day, these books are about finding, as Peter Lynch would say, the 100 backers. What is it about certain businesses that allow them to go up so many times, 100 times? What do these businesses share? So both authors looked at the characteristics that have historically driven that type of return, type of asymmetry that we're all looking for. So it's a great book to read to understand some of those basic traits. For example, Christopher Mayer noted that most companies that have had that kind of growth started out with roughly a billion or so of revenue. Might have been, might have even been five billion, but I think if I remember correctly, it's around a billion. So much higher than actually we would we would think, or at least I would think. But there's a reason for that. And so the business got to a certain stage where it was long enough to stand on its own. 
develop competitive advantages, but it wasn't so large where the law large numbers became a headwind to further growth. And that's just one of the characteristics. And I think if you want a company that's going to go up a hundred times, 50 times, probably better not to start off with a business that has a trillion dollar valuation. But I'd also say not every company that we're looking for is a company that is going to go up a hundred times. It's not necessarily our goal is not only growth, but preservation of capital. And we like, we gravitate to very high quality businesses. Those high quality businesses tend to be larger. And that's not to say you can't do very well with them. I remember Bohemia when I started investing, the largest company in the world was roughly 100 billion. And now because of inflation and compound, the largest company in the world is several trillion. I think 10 years from now, the largest company in the world will likely be 10 trillion. So even if you bought the right company at a trillion, you still might make five or 10 times, but you're not probably not going to make 100 times. So important to understand that and the characteristics that really drive growth. It all comes down to sales growth. It's one of the points that Christopher Mayer makes in his updated version of 100. Sales growth is really the driving factor because margins can only expand for so long. To me, it's the idea of not chasing just the 10 or 20% upside or a double, but the idea that you can make your money many times over. It's really eye-opening that there are businesses that can actually deliver, maybe not 100 times, but as you said, 5, 20, or 50 times. That's already a very impressive record to accomplish. Yes. I'm so glad you said that because I truly feel the same way. Why, why waste your time on a business that might increase 10 or 20%? Why waste your time on trying to capture something that is 20% or even 50% undervalued, only then to have to sell it, pay taxes, find something else, and hopefully not make a mistake with that second investment? It's, I think, for more efficient in terms of growing capital for yourself and for others to look for businesses that have that kind of asymmetry. I think you just summarized the transformation that Warren Buffett went through between his partnership and managing Berkshire Hathaway from chasing stocks that are undervalued to picking stocks he can hold forever. Absolutely. And also was a necessity for him. What did you say? Because as his capital got much larger, it was harder to move money at such amounts into situations where he could come move in and out very quickly. And he has done very well. Thank you so much, Christopher. This was excellent. Uh, I'm really happy with everything we talked about. I learned a lot, so I appreciate it so much. Thank you again. I have always learned so much speaking with you, Bill. Thanks for having me on. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.